So what's happened? Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed, sometime without trying to fight. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. Hi, it's Jeremy Hobson, and this is episode four of the Hobcast, and the first time that I am going to change the order of guests because I was very excited to bring you uh, the amazingly talented Kaya Cristal this week. Um, that is going to hold until next week because of what has been happening in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, this has just been so stunning to watch Kabul fall to the Taliban in a matter of hours. And this is a place uh, that, you know, the United States has been uh, involved in the war there for more than half of my life, for 20 years. Um, and so I happen to be in London right now, and I happen to be sitting right now at the new broadcasting house of the BBC and joined by two amazing journalists, uh, BBC presenters, one currently one longtime former BBC presenter who are going to talk through some of this with us, Pune Gadusi, uh, who has reported from Iran and Afghanistan, uh, has been a BBC presenter, uh, joins me now. Pune, it's so nice to see you. I'm very pleased to be here. And Thank Rich you. Preston, um, who actually made a very brief cameo on the Hobcast a couple of episodes ago <laughs> at the very beginning, um, who is now a BBC presenter and has been covering the news from Afghanistan uh, over the last several days, especially. Rich, uh, great to see you as well. Good to see you too. Well, and I want to just ask both of you, um, because this really has been shocking to to see what you make of, of of what's happened in the last week, keeping in mind that by the time the audience hears this Hobcast, a lot more may happen. But from where we are right now, Pune, what do you make of it? I would say a lot more disappointed and horrified and heartbroken than shocked, to be honest. It isn't that much of a shock it was building up to get here. It has been building up for a while. Unfortunately, it, un it unraveled a lot more quickly than many expected. But if you've ever seen a revolution or a takeover or a collapse of a country, and many journalists have seen a few of them, many are comparing the stories of yesterday to Saigon. Mm -hmm. So if you've seen one or two or three of these events, you know that it simmers and simmers and simmers and suddenly it overflows. And when it starts simmering, you should really expect the overflow to happen any moment soon. One of the things I'm trying to still figure out is whether the Biden administration is surprised by this or not, because it's it's they, they're saying, oh, well, this is what we expected. But then just a matter of days ago, they were saying it was going to take a lot longer for Kabul to fall I mean, probably it is a great opportunity for a lot of people to say, I told you so right now, and mm -hmm. for a lot of people to defend their actions and their political stances for the past year, whether it's current Biden administration, whether it's the Trump administration, whether it's the Afghan government, whether it's Russia, Iran, Pakistan, all the involved players in this game. But I think it isn't really a matter of told you so or we knew it or we didn't know what was going to happen. It's a case of everyone would want to blame the other party right now. Mm -hmm. The American 
establishment or government feels we've been there for 20 years, we've spent as much money, we've spent as much human lives, right. as much riches, as much effort as we could have. Maybe we are sure that it's not going to get any better. We don't, we can't stay there forever, spend forever. So if it's not going to get any better by now, it never will. So bye. The other sides of the story might think the Afghan um, establishment and elite and leaders are to blame because you had the opportunity, you had the funding, you had the training, you had the mentorship, you had the education, you had the free media for 20 years. You had the equipment. You had the equipment, you had the military gear, you, had, you had the Force. training, you <laughs> right. had everything you right. could have asked for uh, coming into the country. You had expats going there, working, living, training, mentoring, yep. educating. You had a lot of Afghans going to other countries, getting educated, getting trained, coming back. Again, if you haven't managed to sort yourself out, and I'm being terribly brutal, not my opinion, I'm just relaying other people's mm -hmm. opinions mm -hmm. to you. In other words, if you haven't sorted yourself out by now, you were never going to. We, we don't have any hope that you ever will. We can't hold your hand forever. The Afghan government and people are feeling let down because they've begun to, ex well, not begun for the past 20 years, they've expected this help and support and and mentorship and handholding and financing. And I think suddenly being left alone is is, of course, going to feel like complete abandonment. And I understand that they feel that way. But again, you know, like any child or any grown up or any person who's been injured and is being rehabilitated at some point you need to tell them okay can you walk on your own without the crutches or without me holding your hand and I'm sorry if it sounds patronizing but there should be a balance in between making a country and its population feel mature and able to take care of themselves or immature and patronized and need to be taken care of so the sentiments are really difficult and confusing and very hostile and very disappointed and it's the best time for everybody to blame the other people for what went right. wrong. And unfortunately, we're never going to be able to get to the end of it while people don't take responsibility and keep blaming everybody else, which is what happens in these times. Rich, you were on the air as some of the Afghan cities were falling to the Taliban. How, how did people react? How did you react as you were seeing that happen? Uh, I think the surprising thing was the speed with which it was happening. We'd seen a few key cities being taken uh, on the border with Iran, up in the north, and then the Taliban were inching closer and closer to the capital. And it was just the sheer pace at which city after city after city was falling. I was on air, as you say, in the early hours of Sunday morning here, Saturday night in the US, when Jalalabad was taken, which mm -hmm. is only, what, 90 miles from uh, Kabul? It was, at the time, the last remaining city other than Kabul that the government held. Uh, I interviewed Colin Grant, the former advisor to H.R. McMaster, mm -hmm. uh, and I asked him why this, you know, had happened. And he just said the Taliban have had 20 years to prepare. You know, they knew the U.S. wasn't going to be here forever. And as soon as Joe Biden put a calendar date on it, well, that was when the clock started ticking. Well, and, and the Biden administration will now say it was Donald Trump that put a calendar date on it, and we actually extended it a little further than what he had said. But I think uh, one of the things I'm looking at now are like, what are the consequences of this? What are the consequences 
for U.S. power. A lot of people have said that this means that the U.S. is going to be seen as weak, as as unable to manage this properly, as abandoning our friends after we just did the same. I'm saying we, you know, as we, the United States, just did the same to the Kurds. What what about that consequences wise, Pune? What what do you what do you see are the like two things that are really going to reverberate from this? I wish I could say uh, hope and resilience, and I can count on people being able to get back to everything that they've worked towards for the past 20 years. But at least for a short period of the next few years or 5, 10, I think it's not going to be very comfortable, or in fact, it's going to be very difficult and terrifying living in Afghanistan, especially if you are one of the younger generation who's now expecting free media, expecting to be able to go to university. Who never lived under the Taliban. Yes. The 20 year olds don't remember what it was like. I was about 20 when Taliban was there and I was in my mid 20s when I went to Afghanistan after the fall of Taliban. And at the time, it felt like a backwarded Um, country. We, the international community, used to send chargeable, hand-chargeable radios, drop them from the planes. I picked up one of those when I was in Afghanistan, and it felt like, you know, there was lack of education, there was lack of media, there was lack of technology, there was lack of connection between the people and connection with the rest of the world. The world is very different. The country is very different right now. Half the people have mobile phones. They have internet connection, although now it's very difficult to get online. Um, I used to mentor female journalists across Afghanistan Mm. and teach them virtually. I've been trying to get in touch with about 20 female Afghan journalists for the past week since the fall of Herat. Half of them haven't been able to get back to me. We used to have a WhatsApp group. We were always in contact with each other. We used to exchange story ideas and and coverage, and they used to send me their articles to read, and they've gone all quiet for the past three, Mm. four days. Some are running from home to home. Some of them have already been arrested. The TV stations have already shut down. The news bulletins are completely gone black and dark. It's going to be a very scary and difficult time, especially for those who are more educated, more progressive, more westernized. A lot of I've seen a campaign of women in Afghanistan who have been working, university lecturers, people who worked in government or media saying, I refuse to live under Taliban. This is a goodbye from me to everyone. I am going to take my own life if it comes to that. I'm not going to accommodate Mm that kind of a life. So hopefully resilience will work within a longer number of years, but for the immediate future or the next couple of years, I don't think it's going to be easy at all. What about you, Rich? What, what do you think of as the consequences of, of this? What are the big picture consequences? I think not looking in the country itself, I think on the kind of international stage, it would be interesting to see what China and Russia do. Um, you know, geographically close to Afghanistan. China actually borders Afghanistan. Of course, yeah, and yeah. had have a potential role to play in shaping the future of the country. I mean, Afghanistan is a mineral-rich place. China might see it as a potential mining resource in the way it has done large parts of Africa. You mm-hmm. know, 
promise money, promise this if you let us, you know, mine your minerals, this, that and the other. Russia similarly might say, well, we can cast our net slightly wider, spread our sphere of influence, especially in a place which used to be influenced by Washington. It's just a power play for someone like Vladimir Putin to wave his fist in that area or to send his troops in or... Uh, strike deals with the Taliban. They've already said they're going to be meeting with Taliban representatives to discuss ways to potentially work together. China said the same thing. It's interesting because the, the, the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, said that it's just what the Chinese and the Russians would want is for us to be bogged down in Afghanistan for another five to 10 years. But what you're saying is, I mean, this actually could benefit them in a way because they're maybe they make a relationship, they have a relationship with the Taliban that certainly the United States and, and the Western powers wouldn't. Potentially. And, you know, there's discussion about whether China's more interested in things like Taiwan, for example, but I think they would be equally interested in Afghanistan. By the way, we're talking all about the U.S. as the key player here, which it is in Afghanistan, but the U.K. has been very involved in the war. Is what is there a feeling of responsibility for what's happening there now at all on the part of the British government? I think absolutely there is. And British ministers have already been talking about the measures they hope to put in place to help bring Afghans to the UK who've worked with British forces. Mm -hmm. The coverage in the newspapers and on talk shows has been actually similar to what there's been in the United States. People have been saying, we lost loved ones, I lost a limb, I served four tours out there, etc. Was it all worth it? That's the question many people here are asking who've got links to Afghanistan. You know, I I just make one last point on this, which is uh, we saw this terrible video of uh, people falling from one of the planes that took off. They had latched onto the landing gear and then the plane, the U.S. Air Force plane took off and they fell to the ground. And it, it coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and I think of one of the most awful and powerful images of that day were people that ju- jumped out of the towers so that they wouldn't burn alive inside the World Trade Center. And it's it just, you know, we're going to be talking about this now for some time because of the... 20th anniversary of 9-11 coming up in less than a month from right now. Um, I want to ask you, though, both, and this was the reason I wanted to talk to you in the first place before we knew what was happening in in Afghanistan, about international news, because you both have devoted a lot of your lives to covering international news, bringing global news to the audience all over the world. I mean, Pune, you're you're so recognized in Afghanistan that the taxi (laughs) drivers know who you are. why do you think it's so important? Because a lot of people don't pay much attention to news that goes on outside of their own neighborhood. I think it is more and more important to be aware of what's going on in the world because all the countries that have a say in the fate of your country, there are more and more of them. Um, whether I'm from Iran or from Afghanistan or from the UK or from China, Maybe you used to say, you know, the neighboring country is interfering in what's happening in our country. But now a country like Afghanistan, on top of the countries that Rich was just mentioning, China and Russia, I feel Saudi Arabia, Iran, Pakistan, um, UK, US, of course, everybody is sitting there to see what happens, what they can do to help or what they can do to help themselves, (laughs) whichever way you're inclined. And I think by not knowing what games are being played and what negotiations are being made and what's happening directly as an effect of those negotiations to the lives of the people on the ground in whichever country it is, you are going to live a life of not really knowing what's happening around you and to you, therefore. 
And exactly that's why people get really shocked when a president falls or a regime falls and other people who have been following the news might not be as shocked because they've begun to see the momentum and the and the gears at play and the background players and and you begin to realize what's going on and and you begin to pattern recognize of what's going on in the next country and the next story mm -hmm. and the next event so i think it's really essential if you want to understand what's happening in your own life to understand what's happened in the lives of people next door to you or a continent away or two continents away more and more than ever Uh, Rich, you were telling me that um, when you anchor the BBC World News on TV in the middle of the night, that you're on, you know, at uh, breakfast time in Asia and uh, prime time in the United States. You're thinking about... He gets about fan mail from all over, all the, over world the world now. <laughs> that's, that's how I pitch you. It's prime time somewhere, Jeremy. <laughs> But how do you decide when you're when you're doing that? How do you and your team decide... What's the most important story? Because something it, for somebody in Malaysia, it's going to be very different than for somebody in South Africa or somebody in Chicago. Yeah, sometimes, but not always. I mean, so take Afghanistan for, for an ex example. That is a huge, important story that has, you know, world interest. And other times there's just a sense of something potentially being relevant to an audience. So there might be something happening. For example, um, I had a story the other day on the World Service radio about Lithuania approving the building of a huge border fence along its border with Belarus to keep migrants out. I mm. mean, does that sound familiar to you as an American? <laughs> right. You know, these stories always have connections. And, you know, going back to what Pune was saying, even a story that you might feel is really, really domestic, it has international links. I mean, take here in the UK, the Brexit vote, a big part of the debate around Brexit was to do with issues of migration. Well, these migrants come from somewhere. What's happening where they're coming from that makes them want to leave, need to leave, etc.? Same with the election of President Trump. There were discussions around migration. Foreign stories really matter. I, I grew up in a rural village in northeast Scotland. I wasn't part of a global hub and interconnected city. But yes, I really believe that these stories matter. You know, take one of the biggest stories of our time, reporting the death of a man in central China from a mysterious new disease. You know, once upon a right. time... You were on air that day. Right. Once upon a time, that was a small foreign story. Yep. Man, man dies in China. Who cares? Who Some cares? Exactly. And I had to pitch hard to get that story on air and actually wasn't deemed the most important story of the night. Of course it wasn't. Why would it be? Officials say around 40 more people are affected, some of them in a critical condition, but that many hundreds of others have come into contact with an infected person. Chinese health officials insist the situation's in hand. It's largely under control. Most patients are showing lighter symptoms, and some of them have already been discharged. Well, there's a big global story for you, right? I there. think it's exactly that who cares issue. You were just comparing the image of a man hanging on a plane trying to get away from Kabul by hanging, literally hanging on the wing of a plane, uh -huh. with a man trying to jump out of the World Trade Center uh -huh. 20 years ago. These are exactly the same sentiments that makes a person decide to make such a decision, which we won't understand. But if you have seen that image in New York and you have seen that image in Kabul, or you've been in any of those positions, then you feel both of those are very relevant to you and you begin to understand to what level of despair does a person have to get to, have, to want to do that. And I think you only need to see what's going on in the world to, to achieve that level of empathy and sympathy and understanding. 
but at, at its core, I guess, uh, for the for the people that were hanging onto that plane, the desperation comes from fear of the Taliban, right? I mean, absolutely. They think they are probably going to be beheaded if they stay. Right. Right. So, okay. Actually, that brings me to another question that I'm wondering, and maybe you have an answer for this, which is, what is at stake for the Taliban? Because they're now in charge of Afghanistan in a in a way that is very different than than the last time, which lasted what five years they were in charge before the war. Very difficult question. As I was saying, the population in Afghanistan are not the same as they were twenty years ago. Right. They're much more connected, much more educated, much more progressive, much more ambitious about what they want from their lives, especially the younger generation. A lot of people are saying the Taliban are not the same Taliban of 20 years ago either. However, I think based on the images we've seen in the past week of them arriving, going into one of the presidential or gubernatorial right. palaces, you know, breaking things down, flogging people, beheading people already, going door to door, and, going door, right. to door taking women, taking young girls. To be honest, I don't feel they are a very different Taliban from the 20-year-ago Taliban, although they have been sitting at international events in Doha and mm-hmm. uh, and Islamabad and mm-hmm. other places negotiating. They are savvier politicians and better at diplomacy, for sure. Mm-hmm. But whether they will plan to rule the country in a different way than 20 years ago, I'm, I'm not sure I would invest in that mm-hmm. personally. Rich, you brought up COVID, um, and I just finally want to ask you both about that because, um, you know, as as listeners of the Hobcast know, we had a little bit of a COVID outbreak in Provincetown, Massachusetts that made international news uh, because everybody there, basically everybody there was vaccinated. So people were very surprised that that had happened. Um, since then, Provincetown has uh, reinstated an indoor mask mandate. Um, which will go away when the COVID positivity rate has gone below 3% for five days in a row. When I got here to the UK, I noticed that things were very different because you get on the tube, the subway, and there are signs everywhere that say you have to wear a mask, but only about 50% of people are actually wearing masks and people say they're exempt for this or that reason. Nobody's actually checking. Um, I went to a the musical Come From Away, which also, by the way, is about 9-11. It was fantastic. Um, but everybody in the theater, crowded theater, nobody wearing a mask. And I thought, I thought if I saw that in the U.S., I would think I'm, I'm in a really Trumpy area of the country. But here, that's not the case. So, like, what's going on? What, what's the view on COVID right now? Are people just, like, over it? Like, that, that's it? We're, we're just going to get back to normal? I think there's a two things at play there's inconsistency and there's fatigue i mean obviously covid hit the uk before it really hit america and so we've been going through this a touch longer and we've been through a few more ups and downs and so i i feel people have now reached the point where they're like i've had my vaccination i've seen cases are going up because of the delta variant but hospitalizations are going down therefore it's a gamble i'm willing to take people are just a little bit over it and i think there are you know, accusations of inconsistent messaging from the government as well, messaging being changed, rules being changed, policies being changed. You no longer have to wear a mask, but then the mayor of London says, oh, you still have to wear a mask on the underground, et cetera, et cetera. And so people point to confusion and just being tired mm-hmm. and fed up with the whole thing. And they do what people often, unfortunately, but understandably do with the news when it gets too much and they switch off from it. And therefore they stop hearing the messaging and they just kind of do their push own it thing. To the back. Yeah. 
um, to be honest, it's my first time in the building, in the office, because I've in been BBC, working from yeah. home for the past year and a half. It's my first time in a while. Just walking in, although I've been reading all the emails and the messages and the decisions that have been made, I felt stepping out of my car, coming towards the building, I wasn't sure, am I supposed to wear a mask? When can I take it off? When? What distance should I be? How many people in the lift? And I've read all of it, and they've been very good at giving the message but I've read so many emails. It's reached that point, as Rich was saying, there's a bit of saturation. There's a bit of complacency of we're all vaccinated, the rates are down, we don't really need to worry that much. And there's a bit of, I have to start living at some point, I guess. Well, all I know is that uh, in my two temperature checks on my way into the BBC, I was at 36 degrees, which I have no idea what that means because <laughs> I hope we, <laughs> we haven't. use Fahrenheit. <laughs> it sounds cold to me, but I, I guess we're okay. Um, Pune Gudusi and Rich Preston of the BBC, thank you so much. It is so good to hear from you guys and hear your views on all these things. It's lovely to talk to you again. Thanks for having us. Well, next time on the Hopcast, and for real this time, Provincetown musician and drag queen Kaya Cristal. She will be talking about music, race, and gender identity. If I had to put a label on it, I would say non-conforming or non-binary, because I will walk down the street in sweats and chucks and a ball cap just as easily as I'll walk down the street in an evening gown. And to me, it doesn't make a difference if it's daytime, if it's nighttime or what have you, I just am me. That is next time. Again, thanks to Andrew Haig and John J. Richardson for production and engineering help. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Hobson. Please rate this podcast and come back next week for Kaya. Thanks for listening. <laughs>